everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of DisasterCast, a system safety podcast. My name is Drew Ray. This episode covers the Three Mile Island accident, and a closely related theory of safety called Normal Accidents by Charles Perrault. I apologise for the delay in putting out this episode. DisasterCast is nominally released every two weeks, but it's been more like four weeks this time. Most of the material for the next episode is already recorded though, so it should be out on time. Let's start this episode by jumping to March 1979. In March 1979, a new movie called The China Syndrome, about a nuclear power plant accident and cover-up, was showing in theatres across the USA. In March 1979, a daily newspaper called The Record ran a four-part series criticising safety at a reactor complex in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania. These reports were described by the president of the company operating the reactors as unpatriotic and, quote, like shouting fire in a crowded theatre. And in March 1979, reactor number two at the complex, known as Three Mile Island, suffered a partial meltdown. In a pressurised water reactor, such as Three Mile Island number 2, there are two coolant loops. The primary coolant runs right through the reactor. It's a closed loop. It keeps the same liquid circulating over and over. This liquid takes heat away from the reactor core and transfers it to the feed water loop. The feed water is turned into steam by heat from the primary loop and blasts through the turbines, creating electricity. Both loops are necessary for both power generation and for safety. You need the feed water loop to keep the primary loop cool. You need the primary loop to keep the reactor core itself cool. The water in the primary loop has three closely related variables. Mass, temperature and pressure. Unless water is actually being put into the reactor or leaking out of the reactor, mass is constant. The main way of regulating temperature is to keep the water moving, and the main way of regulating pressure is with an attached tank called the pressurizer. If there's too much pressure in the loop, some of the coolant moves from the loop to the tank. If there's not enough pressure in the loop, some of the coolant moves back from the tank to the loop. At around 4am, due to a failure of secondary systems, the feed water loop stopped circulating. There's a backup system called the auxiliary loop, which didn't work because two valves which were supposed to be open had been left shut after testing. This blockage in the feed water loop immediately caused an increase in temperature, and therefore pressure, of the primary loop. In response the reactor shut down, just as it was supposed to do. As a result of the sudden increase in pressure, a valve called the PORV opened to release some of the pressure, just as it was supposed to do. This is a fairly normal part of an emergency shutdown. But, after the pressure was released, the valve was supposed to close again. It didn't. An open valve meant that steam was flowing out of the primary loop, into the pressurizer, and then out through the PORV. 
Eventually, this would mean not enough coolant and a melting reactor core. This is known as an LOCA, a loss of coolant accident. Now it happens that there was a simple solution to this exact problem. There was an operator-controlled backup called the block valve. If the operators closed the block valve, steam would stop escaping, and the reactor would be back to its normal shutting down state. Shutting the block valve, though, isn't a general solution to any problem. It's a very specific solution to a stuck-open PORV. Before the operators could implement this as a solution, they needed to understand the problem. This is the point where it would be very helpful for the operators to have a little light that told them whether the PORV was open or closed. And there was indeed a light that they thought provided this information. The light was turned on and off, though, by the power to the valve, rather than the valve position itself. So they thought it was telling them that the valve was closed, when in fact it was merely telling them that the valve was meant to be closed. So with the valve stuck open, and the operators not closing the block valve, a loss of coolant accident was in progress. The operators didn't know what was causing the loss of coolant, but maybe they could at least tell that there was a loss of coolant. Well, that would have been possible if there was a direct way of monitoring the amount of coolant. Instead, they'd been trained to monitor the amount of coolant indirectly by checking the level of the pressurizer. If there was a leak in the primary loop, then the coolant in the pressurizer would have moved into the primary loop to compensate. If there was no leak, the pressurizer would still have plenty of coolant. So for a leak in the primary coolant tube, this was a fairly reliable way of identifying it. But this mental model didn't take into account the possibility that there might be a loss of coolant accident without any leak in the primary loop. The coolant was flowing out of the loop through the pressurizer, so the pressurizer itself had plenty of coolant, even though the loop itself was starting to run dry. The automatic systems, though, recognised what was going on, and the high-pressure injection pump started. The purpose of these pumps is to rapidly push extra coolant into the loop. From the operator's point of view, though, these pumps were pushing extra coolant into a loop that was already almost full. So here's the situation. We have an open valve, the PORV, letting coolant escape from the reactor. We have a reactor without enough coolant. And we have operators who think that the exact opposite is happening. The operators thought that there was too much coolant. The loop and pressurizer are not supposed to be completely full, because once you've completely filled the coolant loop and pressurizer, you've got no way left to control the pressure. This is called going solid. So when the high pressure injection pumps automatically started, they turned them off again. Not only was the coolant loop short of water, it was now losing water faster than new water was going in. And as the amount of liquid went down, the remaining coolant flashed into steam. 
there were a few clues as to what was actually going on. There was a very low concentration of boron in the coolant loop, a hint that there wasn't much coolant at all there. The reactor temperature was increasing, another hint that there wasn't much coolant. In fact, even though all of the control rods were in place, the reaction was effectively restarting, so the radiation emitted by the reactor was increasing. And all of the missing coolant had to be going somewhere. It had ended up in the reactor drain tank, which had increased pressure to the point of bursting. There was also even a temperature monitor downstream of the PORV. The indicator for this monitor, though, was on the back of the control room panel, effectively out of view unless the operators deliberately knew what to look for. Each of these clues suggested that there was missing coolant, but all of the clues were misinterpreted by the operators. The actions they took were sensible from their point of view. When the coolant pump started vibrating, another hint that there was a coolant shortage, they turned them off, relying on natural circulation. Based on their view of the world, the pump's vibrating was not unexpected. It could also happen if there was too much pressure. And turning them off is a sensible thing to do for too much coolant. It's just not the right thing to do if you've got a mostly empty coolant loop filled with steam. A mixture of steam and water doesn't naturally circulate. It separates into steam at the top and water at the bottom. At 6.20, over two hours after the shutdown began, a technician who'd newly come on shift worked out that the PORV must be leaking, and he closed the block valve. This would have been exactly the right thing to do two hours ago, and it was the right thing to do now. Unfortunately, a lot of damage had already occurred, and not everyone knew when the valve had been closed. So he was fixing part of the problem, but he was also removing the evidence of what the problem actually was. If you told the staff that the PORV had failed two hours ago, and that the block valve had been open that entire time, they would have immediately reached the correct conclusion that the coolant had escaped and the reactor core was uncovered. If you simply told them that the PORV had failed and the block valve was closed, they might incorrectly eliminate a coolant leak as a possible explanation for what was going on. And that is in fact what happened. Meanwhile, inside the reactor core, the cladding on the fuel rods was reacting with the hot steam. Fuel itself was melting and spilling into the water, releasing radioactive material. Around 7am, radiation levels in the reactor building started to increase towards dangerous levels. And at 7.24, three and a half hours after the shutdown, a general emergency was declared. Now remember that the plant supervisor who declared a site emergency and the station manager who declared the general emergency still didn't really know what was going on. They were over three hours into a loss of coolant accident and all they knew was that there was a radiation leak. We now know that the main cause of radiation inside the reactor building was the overheating melting core and that radioactive material escaped via the coolant that was leaking. 
it flowed through the sump and into the auxiliary building, which was outside of the containment boundary. So we now had radiation outside the reactor building. There's a whole story to be told here about the communication between the power plant operators, the regulators, and the public. I'm not really sure how to summarise the complicated and sordid tale, except to say that during the Fukushima emergency, the Pennsylvania governor at the time of Three Mile Island was asked what advice he would give the Fukushima authorities. His advice? Get the facts. After the first day of Three Mile Island, an emergency that extended for weeks, he says that they abandoned the operator as a reliable source of information. To return to the technical story, why did the emergency last for weeks? Eight hours after the initial shutdown, the operators still didn't know what had happened, but they had a good idea of what they were faced with now. They took a series of actions to reintroduce coolant, eventually establishing a powered flow of coolant around what was left of the reactor core. 16 hours after the accident, the core temperature started to decrease. Over the next day, the problem went from the crisis of dealing with an overheating reactor to the more chronic problem of dealing with a melted reactor. And then another crisis arose. When metal corrodes in water, it binds the oxygen as solid oxides, but it releases the hydrogen as gas. This happens slowly over time in any nuclear plant, but it happens very rapidly when an overheated core is exposed to steam during a loss of coolant accident. At Fukushima, the large explosions were in fact hydrogen gas igniting, and the same threat was present at Three Mile Island a large bubble of hydrogen inside the pressure dome. Again, this problem was not correctly diagnosed. Early clues were misunderstood, and the right people didn't have the right information to work out what was going on. Fortunately, the hydrogen, whilst dangerous, wasn't mixed with enough oxygen to be explosive. This bought people enough time, for this crisis at least, to be correctly diagnosed and eventually resolved. There really isn't such a thing as unbiased studies of the effects of nuclear accidents. Everyone has an opinion about nuclear power, and that decision is as likely to inform any research as it is to be informed by the research. My intent in saying this isn't to disparage any of the excellent work that's been done by researchers in the field, just to point how difficult it is for outsiders to interpret the findings of how bad something like Three Mile Island is. It's not disputed that significant quantities of radioactive gas and a small quantity of iodine-131 were released outside the plant. The general consensus is that the accident caused significant economic harm, but that it did not have any long-term health effects. In episode 8 of DisasterCast, I covered disaster incubation theory, one of my favourite socio-technical explanations for why accidents happen. Disaster incubation is only one of a number of ideas trying to fill the same space. In this episode, we're going to tackle one of the competing theories called normal accidents. 
Normal Accidents is the brainchild of the sociologist Charles Perrault. If you haven't explicitly heard of him or Normal Accidents, you've probably still encountered the basic ideas, which often appear in the press when major accidents are discussed. If you read or hear someone saying something like, we need to think possibilistically instead of probabilistically, it's likely that they've been influenced, at least in part, by normal accidents. In particular, there were a number of news articles written after Fukushima, which invoked normal accidents as an explanation. The idea of normal accidents emerged from Perrault's study of Three Mile Island, which is why we're covering it in this episode. Risk assessment is not a science. While we can study risk assessment using scientific methods, just as we can study any engineering activity, risk assessment itself doesn't make testable predictions. This may seem a bit non-intuitive. Consider nuclear power. We've had lots of nuclear reactors for a long time. Isn't that enough to tell us how safe they are, and therefore whether predictions about their safety are right or wrong? Put simply, no it isn't. The probabilities that the reactor safety studies predict are so low that we would need tens of thousands of years of operational evidence to actually test those predictions. None of this is controversial, it's well understood by people in the field of risk assessment. Perot goes a step further, though. He says that the reason we've not had more nuclear accidents is simply that reactors haven't been around long enough to have those accidents. In other words, he goes beyond believing that the risk assessments are unreliable to claiming that they significantly underestimate the risk. The theory of normal accidents is essentially Perot's explanation of where that extra risk is coming from. It's not just nuclear power that it applies to, but he uses that as one of his major examples. His starting point is not something that we should consider controversial. And his starting point is that blaming the operators for an accident such as Three Mile Island misses the point. Sure, the operators made mistakes, but we need to work out what it was about the system and the environment that caused those mistakes. Blaming the operators for stopping the high-pressure injectors would be like blaming the coolant for flowing out through an open valve. Perot points to two system features, which he calls interactive complexity and tight coupling, which both make it hard for operators to form an accurate mental model of the systems they are operating. If they don't have an accurate model then any action they take is as likely to make things worse as it is to make things better. The bulk of his book consists of case studies examining interactive complexity and tight coupling, showing how they arise in various ways in various systems and how they contribute to accidents. Interactive complexity is quite similar to more recent ideas such as mode confusion or systems of systems. It arises when system components can interact with each other, in ways that are unanticipated by the designers, or at least in ways that aren't visible to people operating the system. A particular example of this is the idea of hidden common mode dependencies, where one failure can cause multiple, apparently unrelated symptoms at different points in the system. 
Imagine if you were flying a plane and all of the cables went through one particular compartment. A problem in that compartment could cause your navigation system, your engines, your environment and control systems, all to start malfunctioning in strange ways. Correctly identifying that the problem wasn't any of these systems, but instead a failed refrigeration unit in that single compartment, would require the pilots to have a very detailed and correct mental model of how the aircraft was designed and put together. Tight coupling, on the other hand, is where the consequences of failures and actions flow quickly and directly to other parts of the system, with very little opportunity for intervention. Typically, tight coupling results in a need for a single correct response to any problem, or things get worse very quickly. So you can see how these two things work together. If all you've got is interactive complexity, that will lead the operators to make mistakes, but the mistakes aren't fatal. If all you've got is tight coupling, then the operators need to get things exactly right, but it's fairly easy to get them exactly right. Put the two together, interactive complexity and tight coupling, then you're asking the operators to do something that's impossible. You're telling them that they need to be perfectly right in diagnosing a problem that's very difficult to diagnose correctly. And if they don't do it quickly and accurately, then their mistakes are going to be unrecoverable. The main criticism of Perot's work is not this basic underlying idea. The main criticism, and it's a criticism that I personally agree with, is that he then goes beyond this to draw certain conclusions. The idea that risk assessments are unreliable is a bit controversial, but ultimately it's well-founded. The idea that major accidents need to be understood as arising from systems, not from operator errors, isn't controversial. The idea that situational awareness is a safety issue is not controversial. Perot, though, claims that all of these things are intrinsic to certain types of technology. He divides the technologies into three groups. Those that are hopeless and should be abandoned, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power. Those that are difficult to make safe, but where the effort should be made, such as marine transport and DNA research. And those which could be improved with quite modest effort, such as chemical plants and air traffic control. This division into three groups doesn't rest on a firm foundation of his other ideas and to my mind is quite ideologically driven. You can agree with almost everything he writes in normal accidents, and still not come to this same conclusion. And I think the ideology can be seen in his summary of the possible criticisms. He says that his recommendations can be contested if a. the science of risk assessment does turn out to be correct, or b. his recommendations turn out to be contrary to public opinions and values, or C, there is a way to run these sorts of systems safely. The first two criticisms can't really be made. Risk assessment is not a science, and his characterizations are based on an accurate reading of public opinion. His third possible criticism is a straw man, though. There's nothing in normal accident theory which says that the safety of a system depends on the underlying technology. While he can criticise the evidence that nuclear power is safe, 
there's no counter-evidence that nuclear power is inherently unsafe, particularly when compared to alternate technology with equally dodgy risk assessment and spectacularly worse historical safety records. Finally, a good theory of safety should tell us what to do next. Normal accidents is deeply pessimistic in that it tells us that the best way to be safe is to stop doing things, to abandon technology that's beyond our ability to make safe. And I think making this argument is contrary to the whole socio-technical understanding of safety that Perot himself champions. To make the world safer, safety experts cannot let themselves be labelled as pessimists and disablers. If they do that, they're going to lose their own organisational power to make things safer. Some of the disaster cast listeners are actually safety practitioners in the nuclear power industry. Can you just imagine them walking into the office with a copy of Normal Accidents and saying, well, that's it, folks, we're in the wrong industry, inherently unsafe, let's give up trying to make it safe. I'm pretty sure the consequence would not be an end to nuclear power, it would just be an end to their ability to influence the safety of nuclear power. One point I do agree with Charles Perrault very strongly on, though, is his scepticism about quantitative risk assessment. We'll have more to say that about that in future episodes, including an interview with sociologist John Downer on the very next episode of DisasterCast. One of the reasons that Charles Perrault likes to single out nuclear power is because of concerns about the sheer scale of what can go wrong in a nuclear accident. So I thought it would be interesting to have a think about, if we were going to judge a technology not by probability but by possibility, just how would nuclear power fare? What's really the worst that could happen in a nuclear accident? To answer the question, let's start with how people can be directly hurt from a nuclear power plant. There are really only three main ways. Firstly, explosions and fires. Most nuclear plants use high-pressure liquid as part of the cycle, and all nuclear plants have the potential to accidentally generate high pressure. Additionally, wherever you have energy, metal and water, you have the potential to generate hydrogen gas, which in the right mixture with oxygen is explosive. So, first way people can get hurt, simple explosions. Second way direct exposure to radiation due to being close to a radiation source. The total dose a person gets is a combination of the size of the source, the type of material, and the length of exposure. In all nuclear accidents to date, only workers or emergency personnel have been directly irradiated, but in some cases this has been fatal. People who are directly exposed to radiation, though, are not themselves radioactive, and it's hard to see in any nuclear accident how we could have enough direct radiation to cause significant harm to the public. So then we have the third way, contamination with radioactive material, typically by actually ingesting small amounts of material, that is, eating it or breathing it in. Contrary to what many people believe, materials with long half-lives are not the problem. A long half-life means that a material doesn't give off a lot of radiation. Equally, gases 
and materials with very short half-lives are not particularly dangerous either, because they remove themselves from the environment of an accident. The materials that are of most concern are those that have medium half-lives and which are chemically similar to substances which humans need to survive. The result is that bodies of victims actually store radioactive material, and this results in long-term radiation damage. The two materials of greatest concern are iodine-131 and cesium-137. Our bodies store iodine in our thyroid gland, and our bodies can't differentiate between normal iodine and the radioactive version. That's why iodine tablets are given as part of the emergency response to nuclear accidents. By giving the body more iodine than it needs, it's less likely to store the dangerous iodine-131, which is associated with thyroid cancer. Our bodies don't make a lot of use of cesium, but cesium is chemically similar to potassium, and that's used throughout the body. So absorbing cesium-137 can result in all sorts of problems all through your body. Working out how many people have been hurt in past nuclear accidents, and how many might be hurt in future accidents, is naturally going to be pretty controversial. No one disputes, for example, that Hiroshima and Nagasaki caused significantly elevated cancer rates in the survivors. But atomic bombs involve much more exposure to direct radiation and contamination with a much broader range of radioactive materials than you see in a power plant accident. Chernobyl and Three Mile Island both have some studies showing increased cancer rates, but none of these studies have an effect so large that it can't be explained by the fact that you're monitoring more closely. You've got increased screening of the local populations. In whichever side of the nuclear fence you sit on, you have to see that both sides have a strong vested interest in exaggerating or minimising the effects. If we take the absolute worst case for a nuclear accident, we're talking about several hundred workers killed or injured, and a population of several hundred thousand with an increased lifetime risk of cancer, probably equivalent to several thousand people dying earlier than they otherwise would have. We haven't actually seen an accident on this scale yet, but certainly if we think about what could have happened at Fukushima, if we think about what could have happened at Chernobyl, if we think about what could have happened at Three Mile Island, then that's the sort of scale you're talking about. Going purely by worst cases, the most dangerous form of energy, both potentially and historically, turns out to be hydroelectric power. The Banquo Dam collapse of 1975 killed around 200,000 people directly, with disease and homelessness likely to have killed significantly more. So even if you say, well, you're underestimating the size of nuclear accidents, you multiply it by 10 and you get several thousand people killed. Multiply it by 100 and you get 10,000 people killed. Um, the direct numbers killed in a dam collapse absolutely swamp that sort of number. Coal-fired power plants are not renowned for major accidents, but they're considered by some people to be one continuous accident. You know, some reports say that they kill tens of thousands of people each year in Europe alone. Take these figures with a pretty hefty grain of salt, though. When you consider how difficult it is to work out the effects of Chernobyl, which affected quite a well-defined population and area, 
you can imagine how much dodgier it is to make claims about the impact of coal. We don't have any control population to compare with. There's no place in the world that's not affected by coal mining, coal-fired power plants for us to say, well, look at these people who have much better outcomes. The most direct risks of coal come from mining, not from the power plants. Where accidents are unfortunately frequent enough that we do have a good grasp on what the worst case could be. The worst ever coal mine disasters were both this century, in China and in France, killing 1,500 and 1,000 workers, respectively. Incidentally, you'll occasionally hear claims that coal is more radioactive than nuclear power. Read those particular claims very carefully. They usually say something like, radiation around coal plants is a hundred times that, the radiation around nuclear plants. Well, this is technically true, it doesn't really say anything because it doesn't take the nuclear waste into account. Except during accidents, nuclear plants don't release any radiation, but they do package it up to be put somewhere else. My purpose in talking about this isn't to argue for or against nuclear power, but I do want to show the difficulty in trying to judge which technologies we should select or discard based on the worst-case outcome. Risk can only be managed properly when we're honest with ourselves and others about the size of the risk, including our own uncertainty in trying to measure exactly what that size is. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Thank you for all of the tweets and retweets about the show, and in particular for the kind emails. If you ever find yourself waiting for the next episode of DisasterCast, do feel free to send me a friendly prompt. Every little bit of motivation helps.